Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yo, what is happening? Good people out there in podcast land. It's your boy, Dan White Hodge, back at it. And oh, wouldn't you know it? It's that wondrous, 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 <laughs> wondrous time of year again. The American Academy of Religions annual conference oh mercy here it is it's that time it's always the weekend right before thanksgiving y'all are y'all getting ready for thanksgiving are y'all getting ready are y'all getting ready for that y'all getting ready to throw down and have some thanksgiving pie and some thanksgiving i don't know y'all may be vegetarians or pescatarians i am not uh i throw down i smoke all of my meat and uh, in fact, I will begin on Tuesday night. Uh, I will begin to smoke the meat and prepare it. I usually even in the past, I've prepared a, a ham uh, starting in September, you know, because you got to get a well, you got to buy the, the raw meat, right? With no additives, no nothing. And then you got to th- put it in a brine, let that brine just sit there. The salt helps it, you know, not go rotten. And then you smoke that thing uh, for like nine hours, right? Uh, but this year I won't be doing all that. But I'll start on Tuesday and be throwing down. Your boy is a damn good cook. So if you're in the Chicago area, uh, hit a brother up, man. Because, you know, I, I throw down. I ain't no joke, man. I ain't no joke in the kitchen. I hate. Um, so, yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be having some some damn good food uh, to eat. and uh, But most of all, uh, you know, this week, uh, just enjoying uh, another round of the American Academy of Religion. And it also partners with the uh, Society for Biblical Literature. So it's AARSBL. This year we're in San Diego, sunny San Diego. Oh, I'm staring out my um, my window now. It's, it's sunny. It's blue skies. There's seagulls. <laughs> now nah, I ain't going to front. <laughs> I'm actually still in Chicago right now. <laughs> right now, um, uh, looking out my window, it's gray. The leaves have fallen off the uh, the uh, the trees, and it's cold, it's windy, it's raining. <laughs> but I'm pre-recording this just because I knew um, I wasn't going to have time to record a whole episode on the weekend because I'll be at AAR. So by the time you listen to this, I'll actually be at AAR. I'm probably zipping around different workshops and plenaries and all that good stuff right now. And this week, we have a great friend of mine, colleague, um, Dr. Monica Miller, then her husband, Christopher Driscoll, Dr. Christopher Driscoll, who I've had on the show before, uh, joined in on the conversation, and we just went in. So this is a two-part series. Um, I wanted to, because we, I just ended up pressing record, and it just the conversation just went and y'all got to hear this. And as you always know, um, on profane faith, I always like to have a variety of voices. I like to have a variety of thought, particularly when it comes to religious thought. Uh, and when we think about humanism, atheism, I think it's important to have those conversations as well. And so, uh, Monica has been a great friend. I first met her, I think back in 2010, 2011, uh, she was getting her and Anthony Penn were establishing uh, our group in the American Academy of Religion called Critical Approaches to Hip Hop and Religion. And, uh, she's just been a friend ever since. She is an amazing thinker. Um, first person I saw to really just kind of call out. Well, not first person. I should, let me, let me, let me take that back. Not first person because, um, I, I was going to say the first person to call out James Cone, but I should say of my generation, uh, to call out James Cone, like in a room and be like, Hey, we need to be thinking about these things broader and bigger. Um, and you know, and of course he was cool with that. You know, that was, that was kind of James Cone's thing, right? He was just kind of like, Hey, you know, yeah, absolutely improve on my work and, and whatnot. And, and, uh, but she did it in such a way that wasn't disrespectful. Wasn't, uh, you know, didn't, um, you know, it wasn't like trying to call him out. 
right? It was done so in a way like, hey, yes, he's done amazing work. Now let's build on that. And it's not like he's the end-all, be-all of this particular XYZ thing, right? Um, and, you know, let's let's think through this from a stronger critical lens. And so she's helped shape my own opinion um, on how we look at God, how we engage God. And, you know, uh, I myself continue to identify myself as a Christian. Uh, I still believe in a higher power, however you want to call it, the supernatural world. Um, but I like hanging around those people who don't and who look at, you know, humanism and look at aspects of atheism and then begin to ask, you know, those questions and, and, and challenge us, challenge our own, but we can challenge each other in our own thinking. And so that's what I've appreciated about Monica. Damn good scholar in uh, hip hop and religious studies. Uh, they have a brand new book out, Method as Identity, uh, that's out now in stores. In fact, if you're here at AAR, I, I highly recommend going and checking it out. Get you a desk copy uh, um, of that, you know, and, uh, and I think the paperback should be out soon because, you know, academic books, I know they're expensive, uh, but if you can get one in your library, if you can get one uh, at the public library, that'd be great. I think, because I think the going price for it is like a hundred bucks or something like that. I did get my copy. Um, and and so it is an amazing book. Uh, great. And it's good and dense just for for people like us who like to study dense works. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I can't recommend it enough. And so without any further ado, I just I want to hop right into this because, again, this is a two part series. And the conversation that uh, Monica and then Chris and I have is just amazing. We had a chance to sit down uh, this summer. Uh, and they just have a little conversation about religion and about God and faith and just even her background. She wasn't always an academic, which I find always amazing. I always love hearing about folks pre-background <laughs> before they got into the academy. And uh, for those of you who haven't come to the American Academy of Religion, I would. Here's the thing. It's not for everybody. Um, and I've said this before on the show, so I won't rehash what I've already said. But I will say this. If you're somebody who is thinking about things in, in the religious realm beyond the general phase of oh there's a god out there and god blesses us especially if you're still referring to god and still a he pronoun right oh he is amazing <laughs> it might be good if you come to an academic conference of the aar or even a regional one they have regional conferences this is the main conference and they have regional ones throughout the entire country just look up barricade academy of religion look in your region uh and you know see what they're having you know check it out go light first and before you get to the big one it is can be overwhelming there's a, a lot of scholars 15 20 000 people there um, for those of you who are normal conference goers, you know, when you have a plenary, usually everything shuts down, but that's not AAR. There's usually five or six plenaries going at the same time as workshops, you know, 200 other workshops at the same time. So this is a huge monster. It's definitely the biggest conference I have ever been to. I can't imagine who organizes it or the administrators. I'd, I'd just be lost. It wouldn't happen <laughs> if I was organizing it. Um, so, yes, I... That is, and like I said, it's not for everybody because there are people who still get up and just read their papers in a very boring, stale-ass manner. Um, so I'm just like, oh, Lord Jesus. Uh, however, the bulk of the material is great. I have learned so much uh, in my own field, uh, in communication studies and religious studies, religion and rhetoric, uh, hip-hop. Uh, everybody's there. Everybody who you've probably read about or reading about, they go to this, they show up, if not for one day or a couple of days. And it's just great to have those conversations. Um, and for me, to act like a nerd for about three days, three or four days. Uh, it's nice to talk the jargon in, in the lingo. Um, but it's, I would also say, it's also great if you're a pastor, if you consider yourself in leadership, particularly in a ministry somewhere or a church somewhere, I would also recommend, you know, coming out. So check it out. You know, again, just kind of promoting it again. It's not perfect. No, no place is. They have their own issues and they got to deal with that, all that mess as well. Um, but I will say that it's been a great oasis for me uh, over the last 10 years uh, for me to be there and to, pre to present, to participate. Um, you know, it's a humbling place when you submit a paper and you get, you know, you still get told no, even after 20 years in the academy, right? It's kind of like, whoa, but it's good. That's good. We need that. Like I always say, no one's above critique, including myself. So that being said, I just wanted to pump that. Dr. Monica Miller, she is Associate Professor uh, of Religion and Africana Studies at uh, Lehigh University. Miller holds uh, research interest in religion, irreligion, and religion and irreligion in youth culture and popular culture, changing contours of identity and difference, new black religious movements, dysphoric mobility in transatlantic context, and theory and method in the academic study of religion. 
She is the author of numerous books and scholarly comp- uh, contributions spanning topics such as social difference in and out of religion, transatlantic and diasporic uh, blackness, religion in and of hip hop culture, and social techniques of identity um, in the study of religion. She is currently at work on two forthcoming books, This New Black Gods, Towards a Theory of Black Religion as Identity. And I can say, hearing her ideas on this um, over the last two, three years is amazing. So when that book comes out, you got to go check it out. Um, it's under contract with Bloomsbury Academic and a co-author volume. Well, actually, this isn't even, this is out now. It's not forthcoming anymore. This is out now. Uh, but it's co-author volume, Method as Identity uh, in the Academic Study of Religion. And that was with Lexington. That one, like I said, just came out. And that's with, that's with her uh, husband, co-edited project with uh, Chris Driscoll. Um, of course, Anthony Penn in the production of Black Meaning in the Work of Hip Hop Artist Kendrick Lamar. So they just put out a book also on Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Spirits, Kendrick Lamar and the Making of Black Meaning, okay? So, y'all, that book right there, fire. (laughs) All right, fire. So, if you're already getting, like, uh, you know, your scholarly appetite tantalized, just, just, uh, again, just check out her work, check out her material. This conversation we have um, is amazing. And, again, she's one of the people who has helped establish uh, really the the subgenre or the subfield, I should say, excuse me, of hip hop studies. So hip hop and religion. So really a subfield of hip hop studies. And so, you know, those are the, you know, AAR and places like that. This is where those type of conversations happen, right? This is where um, we carve out new spaces and new, new environments for us and whatnot. And so um, I love it. And, and I love engaging in that, you know, those, those type of conversations. So I appreciated her book, uh, the hip hop and religion reader, along with, uh, religion and hip hop religion are mapping the new terrain in the U S that's co-edited with Anthony Penn and of course, rapper Bernard Bun B Freeman. And so, uh, she's put out a lot of good stuff and she is an amazing writer and, and, and speaker you about to see. And I've already given, uh, Chris Driscoll's, uh, Chris, her husband's uh, intro. So if you haven't heard that episode, uh, with, uh, Chris and I, uh, I'm going to put those that link in the show notes. You can go check that out right now, whitehodgepodcast.com. And uh, you can check him out uh, when I um, uh, interviewed him. This was, I think, last season. Great conversation as well. So, without any further ado, here we go, yo. Here we go. If you in San Diego, hit a brother up. If not, I'll see you on 2 and 2, I guess, right? Is that 2 and 2? <laughs> Either way. Thanks, y'all. Check this out. Cool. All right. All right. Well, um, welcome to doctors, both Monica Miller and Dr. Chris Driscoll. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a long time in coming. Um, we first met at the Studious uh, American Academy of Religion. Um, I actually remember um, Tom Boudin telling me, uh, he was like, yeah. you got to meet Monica Miller. You know Monica Miller? I was just like, no, nah, I don't know who this is. He's like, oh, man, you got to meet him. They're starting this new critical for hip hop studies thing. And I was like, oh, man. So we have connected and been friends ever since. And then, Chris, I met you through just papers that you were presenting and um, and now y'all married. Gee whiz. Now we're married. I know. I feel like yeah, we are. Um, I don't think we <laughs> ever said a public word on that. But yeah, we are uh, married and uh, we, we found love in hip hop. Ah, there we go. At the AAR. No uh, right. 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 <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, let me let's start off. because I definitely want to hop into the text. Y'all have an amazing body of research and just your unique perspectives um, are just intriguing beyond wild. But Monica, let, let me just start with you. Start with you. And for those of you listening, if you haven't heard Dr. Chris Driscoll's uh, podcast, I'll put the show links in the uh, show notes or the links in the show notes, excuse me, at whitearchpodcast.com. So you can kind of check out his bio there. But I definitely wanted to hear, Monica, just you, where, where'd you come from? What's happened from birth to now? All right. That sounds good, Doc. So, well, uh, first off, it's always an honor and privilege to be in conversation with you, to be in dialogue with you. Uh, You are one of our closest friends and most important Mm. uh, conversation partners. It's been a lot of fun doing this thing over these last number of years, you know, with Alonda Clay uh, as well. And of course, under the brilliant... um, 
guidance and mentorship of uh, Dr. Penn and his wisdom. Uh, it's been truly incredible and amazing. And to look at all of our trajectories, uh, kind of where we started, right? And yeah. um, sort of where we are now, it's just been really uh, fascinating. So we always want to thank you for being so uh, generous and so critical in what you do and uh, the ways in which you've impacted our own scholarship. So with that said, um, well, yes, Chris and I got married. So I will say <laughs> that for the world, because I don't think we ever announced it um, publicly. We're just kind of humble in that regard. Um, hmm. We find love in hip hop and we got married um, in a very small family oriented uh, ceremony and celebration. And then I had just gotten tenure um, at Lehigh University. Um, this was in May of 2016. We got married in July and then we took off for Germany where we lived for a year. We were wow. at um, Institute for Philosophical Research in Hanover. And that uh, that was a blast and that was incredible. And we'll circle back around to that because it connects to the Kendrick volume, which we love the fact that you're in, Dan. Um, that book's about to come out uh, pretty soon. But as to where I started, um, I'm from Long Island, New York. So a very small little, very white little town okay. uh, <laughs> at the eastern end of Long Island. So if you were on the Long Island expressway and you took it all the way to the end, that exit is 73, where I live, where I come from, uh, is about 35, 40 minutes east of there. So second to the last town east, and then um, you can't go any further. So I definitely grew up in a bubble. Um, like mm. I said, I grew up around a lot of diversity. Um, interestingly, I didn't grow up hip hop. I didn't find my um, sort of hip hop voice, if you will, until I was in high school, uh, maybe 11th and 12th grade, where I started noticing the constraints of identity and noticing power structures and structural inequities within my own uh, school, within um, events that were happening, uh, you know, across uh, the United States, outside of the United States. So as I become more politically aware, I become more aware of my own uh, vulnerability, mm. but also of the construct of race and what that meant for uh, being a black woman in this world. Um, and so I went to Southfield High School and I graduated from there um, from about 13 through, I'd say, maybe the second year of undergrad. Um, mm. I was a commercial kid. And so I did a lot of uh, commercial work and um, print work and you know, um, I can remember uh, to this day, one of my favorite commercials was doing a Wendy's commercial. It was the <laughs> Where's Dave. Has anyone seen Dave? And I was also the, um, I guess my feminism started early. I was also the Tampax uh, girl in Seventeen uh, Magazine on rollerblades. And so I remember uh, that quite well. And it was a lot of fun. And, you know, my older sister and I, we got into it, Dan, by mistake. Wow. Yeah. So um, her boyfriend at the time was doing some modeling and his agent really liked, you know, what my sister um, was up to and her looks or, you know, personality and things like that. And then she mentioned she had a sister. And so then the agent um, started asking questions about me. And before you know it, you know, these two little black girls from South Hold, New York were 13 years old and getting on a bus and a train going to New York city by ourselves because our mom was a single, a single parent. Okay. Um, and so being a single mom with three girls, I'm in the middle. My mom didn't have the time and the energy um, or the resources to be shuttling us back and forth to New York city all the time for, um, you know, casting calls. And so we'd get on the bus right from South hold and, We'd go to the city and we'd do these auditions and, you know, the agent would call and say, good job, you booked this job. And so, wow. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But I did have to make a decision uh, once I started college, which was did I want to uh, pursue acting or modeling or did I want to continue my studies? And I definitely chose wanting to continue my studies, um, you know, and I can remember, you know, as far back as high school, Dan, being very interested in human behavior mm. and really interested in why do people do what they do? 
So I hadn't read Bourdieu at the time, but I was already sort of thinking about social logics and logics of practice and um, different kinds of imaginations. And, you know, what what is it that makes people do what they do in the social world? And I thought initially that I would arrive at law school with the kinds of philosophical questions that I had. But the more and more I dug into the anthropological imagination, the more and more I kept running up against religion. And so I said, let me explore this a little more. There's got to be something to the religious. At that time, it was way more theological for me. And we can talk a little bit about my journey from the theological to the academic study of religion. But, um, you know, at any rate, it was kind of it was kind of a space where it just grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And those questions, you know, got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, what makes people tick? What makes people mm. become religious fanatics? What makes people, yeah. you know, um, convert from one religion to another? What makes people sexist and, and racist and homophobic? Like where do folk get these things from? And I would talk to a lot of people and that's something I can remember being really formative for me, Dan. So I was always someone who seemingly found myself with the outcast of a particular group. I can remember in high school, there were some students that had immigrated to the United States with their families and they just didn't have a lot of friends. But my sisters and I, we would find ourselves friends with folk that were sort of on the periphery of a more dominant culture hmm. and have conversations with people and realizing that there, the world was just so much bigger than what was presented to us in this little bubble in Southwold, New York. It made me want to know more about social difference and identity um, and diversity. And so I also read a lot when I was younger. My older sister, I have to give her all of the credit and a big shout out to uh, Nikki Tracoach for really introducing me to the thought of Malcolm X and Martin King and Asada Shakur and Angela Davis. Um, my older sister was a poet growing up. And so she was really kind of self curating within the black political imagination and black thought um, in particular. And so she had a lot of impact on um, my own thinking. So being interested in human behavior, every time I wanted to go to law school, religion kept sort of knocking at my door and sort mm. of bugging me in an interesting kind of way. And so I said, well, let me figure out what this all means. So after undergrad, you know, I pursued uh, the Master's of Theological Studies at Drew University. And then I said to myself, well, after the MTS, then I will go to law school after that. But then even bigger questions um, started opening. <laughs> <laughs> and then before you know it, I'm in a PhD program where I'm asking even bigger and bigger questions, but I'm being told I have to, you know, narrow it down and form, oh, yeah. you know, these lines of expertise and, you know, things like that. So um, that's a little bit about my occupational um, journey, but I would say that my thinking, um, you know, has always been around the sociological and the anthropological and kind of questioning um, human logics of practice. And, you know, that took me in different places. One of the places uh, that took me was when I was in undergrad, I will never forget, I had a course in African-American studies with Mark Chapman, who is a mm. professor um, at Fordham University. And so he introduced me to the work of Anthony Penn. Okay. And he, well, he introduces me really to black theological thought. Um, and that just opened up my world and it shook my world at the same time. OK. All right. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I start to read the works of James Cone and, you know, liberation theologies. I was already getting in some of my other courses. I can, you know, remember taking classes with Janine Hill Flett. Fletcher and remembering, you know, um, being introduced to Latin American liberation thought, but it was Mark Chapman who introduced me to black theological thought, to the work of um, Anthony Penn. When I found those discourses, Doc, I was like, I'm never going to law school. I've got to figure out what this stuff is all about. <laughs> wow. That's deep. Yeah. Especially um, the work of Cone, you know? Yeah. Um, especially the work of Conan. So 
by the time, you know, in between my master's and my starting my PhD, I knew my questions were heading um, towards the direction of religion and popular culture. And um, I kept coming back to hip hop, um, coming back to hip hop. Uh, in the beginning, it was about, you know, what is the relationship between hip hop and the black church? And then my thought process begins to develop. So it's interesting to think about where I am now and kind of how I began. So thank you for asking that quest that question. You made me reflect um, on my journey um, a little bit and remembering, you know, um, some really funny ways into the discourse that I find myself today. Yeah, no, I'm glad. Thank you. And I appreciate you, sh sh you know, sharing that because, I mean, mm -hmm. I think it does. It just gives all of us context. What was that hashtag that uh, that came up or something about scholars and interesting facts? And uh, mm -hmm. I was just it was just interesting just, to, you know, to, you know, to read some of those those things. And, and Chris, you said you got, I didn't know this. You said you got struck by lightning. Right. I, I did. I did. <laughs> That is correct. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as high school ended, I uh, packed actually my mom's car and uh, drove from Louisiana to Colorado. And uh, I, I wanted to live in the mountains. So I got a job as a laborer. Okay. And I spent all my free time uh, just kind of, I don't know, uh, a parapetet. I, cruising through the wilderness up there. And one day a storm came in really, really quickly. And I had to make a decision. Do I stay down in this kind of basin where I was next to the trees or do I try and get back up to the vehicle that was parked at uh, the top of this pass, Molas Pass actually. Okay. In the San Juan Mountains. And uh, yeah, to make a long story short, I decided to try and make it to my car and I, I should have stayed in the trees because the, <laughs> the storm came in so quickly that uh, it started to hail. And Oof. so I was getting pelted with hail as I was essentially having to hike about three quarters of a mile up uh, um, a mild bunny slope basically uh, a, a small ski slope and uh, it's where the grade wasn't so bad, but if you've ever tried to run uphill for three quarters of a mile, it's exhausting. So yeah. I was trying to do that and the thunder got worse and worse to the point that it would shake my bones. And uh, at one point it thundered so loudly that I crouched down by this scrub brush. And then the next thing I know, is I am opening my eyes, I'm flat on my back, and I'm paralyzed. I can't move anything, but yeah. I know that I'm, I'm sentient and my eyes are open. I can feel uh, the hail still hitting me, but I, I don't know what in the world just happened. My hat had flown off, and uh, yeah, so after, I don't know how long it was, a few seconds or uh, I don't think too long, um, I regained my... Uh, uh, ability to move my body and I got up and just started praying actually that's what I did <laughs> please, please God get me out of this situation please please get me out of this situation so uh, yeah I, I made it up to my car and got in the car and then uh, as I was driving back to my apartment I realized that I was stinking the car up I smelled like burning hair. And wow. I, in fact, it took me about two weeks to shake the smell of burning hair. I would be out at parties and people would ask what, what is that smell? Because it was so pronounced. Damn. But yeah, so it, uh, that was, uh, my lightning story. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it seems like a lifetime ago now, but, uh, yep. It, uh, that is after that, I, I got my ass into college and uh, <laughs> started studying religion and haven't really looked back yet. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's these these are amazing stories. I mean, this is and this is the type of stuff. What's that? Thing, Doc, that I forgot to mention, I would be remiss to leave out is that my mom had a huge significant on my thought mm. and my academic okay. um, journey because my mom 
raised us in a household that was very eclectic, but also very politicized in a lot of ways. So my mom at a very young age would like make us sit down and listen to Louis Farrakhan. Wow. And we weren't like Nation of Islam or anything, but mm-hmm. just as like a as a political thought leader in the black community, my mom would have us sit down and listen to Farrakhan, Maxine Waters. We um, had to watch, uh, you know, certain um, films and movies and documentaries, Roots, uh, Roots of course. Uh, C-SPAN, she used to make us watch C-SPAN um, a whole lot and would just have a lot of political conversations with us. My mom is a really strong humanist um, in a lot of ways. So we were raised in the Baptist church, but my mom came to um, convert to Buddhism as part of her journey. Okay. Uh, which she was impacted significantly by when we lived in Japan for uh, some years. My dad was in the service. And so there she becomes introduced to Buddhism and then finds it again later in her life. But I just remember my mom really um, encouraging eclecticism and really encouraging kind of your make your own path, find your own journey, make your own journey, but most importantly, know why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. And so that question of why is always stuck to me, like have, you know, um, be able to provide answers for what it is that you come to do or what you find yourself doing and whatever or wherever life takes you. So shout out to my mom, Charlotte Pace Spano. I would be absolutely remiss. And then I have to say that I learned a lot about heterodoxy, um, interestingly, from my grandmother (laughs) on my mother's side. And so she's still alive uh, today. You know, uh, thank goodness. Thank the universe for that. Um, And she was a trustee in the Baptist church for so many years. But then I remember she would always have aspects of like magic at work, Dan. And so Mm. like from a very young age, I would, you know, think of her almost like as a genie or something. Um, But she would say she would have like sayings that she would repeat um, like little life sayings that she would repeat that had nothing to do with religion, nothing to do um, with the church, but was always sort of rooted in some kind of like cosmic sort of interaction, you know, um, or she talk about the lotto in like a very supernatural and mystical kind of way. She would talk a lot about spirits and ghosts and really had a way of like humanizing ghosts. Hmm. And so like, oh, that's no one, you know, I'm like, you know, I would call her Nima. Nima, did you hear that noise? I was a very uh, scary child growing up, Dan. So I <laughs> was afraid of everything, every noise, every strange occurrence, every um, everything and anything. I was afraid to be by myself. I was afraid to sleep alone. I was afraid like so as a child, I was just very scary um, and very clingy uh, to my mom, especially. Um, But, you know, I'd say to my grandma, hey, Nima, did you hear that noise or that sound? And she'd say, oh, that ain't no, that ain't nothing but so-and-so coming back to say hello. Or um, he used to spend a lot of time or she used to spend a lot of time in this house or um, they're coming back to get their coins or, you know, (laughs) like, what is she talking about? And so my grandmother in a lot of ways, um, was sort of a, became like a mystic or like a guru for me um, and, and had a certain kind of uh, phenomenology at work that she didn't find to be in contradiction or intention, um, intention with her church background or with her religious form or anything like that. She held hmm. these heterodox worlds with orthodoxy together so hmm. comfortably that, you know, I was always amazed watching her do those kinds of gymnastics. And so I always found those conversations interesting. And then lastly, I would just quickly mention, um, although I was a scary child, you know, when I started going into New York City, my world opened up in a, in a really big way. And I would find myself actually having conversations with homeless people a lot. And so um, not sure why I was attracted to having conversations with homeless folk or I felt like they were seeking me out for conversation. But I always thought that, you know, I might not always have a dollar or a quarter or a penny to give them, but I can at least give them some of my time or I can at least 
look in their eyes and acknowledge their humanity. And if you think of many people just passing by the homeless, not looking at them at all, I would always sort of work to acknowledge, to make a connection, to kind of look in their eyes and say, you know, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'm sorry, I don't have any change, but, you know, um, are you good? You know, do do you want to talk about anything? Just sort of give them a sense that they have community, if only uh, for a moment. But I would always end up getting into these spiritual um, conversations with homeless folk, things about spirits and theologies and different kinds of religions and conspiracy theories. And so all of that to say, I think that was a curation of my own ethnographic imagination, I think, at a young age and just being interested in difference and being interested in having um, conversations with a diverse array of people and voices. See, and that's the richness, I think, that, you know, right, that informs our scholarship. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, it's one of the reasons why, I, you know, even, you know, put my, that was episode one of, of the podcast. It's like, you know, this is, this stuff is, has, has informed, you know, like me and in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the difference, I think, you know, just of looking. And I don't know, I mean, I think all of us have, right, have some kind of uh, upbringing and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, but I think particularly as ethnic minorities, particularly since the academy really wasn't designed for us and we've had to kind right. of make a space um, in that environment to, to exist, you know, to right. even just be there. Um, I think these stories and these narratives really matter. So I, again, I appreciate both of y'all sharing, um, on this. So yeah. the book, I mean, Kendrick, this is a yeah. reader. I'm, I'm hyped to be in this. Um, why, why Kendrick? Why, why? And you know, why not Kanye? <laughs> Well, that's a really good question. Before, I think Chris is going to say a few words. Yeah, I can, um, I can talk about uh, why Kendrick. About that, but I'll just add again a little personal reflection there. Um, this idea, we were inspired, Chris will tell you which albums um, in particular had uh, the biggest impact on us. But while we were on leave um, in Europe, in Germany, Hanover, uh, to be um, exact, Dr. Pin, had, who is a longtime friend and uh, colleague of the Institute and of Professor Dr. Jürgen Manimann, who is the uh, director there at the Institute for Philosophical Research. And Dr. Pin came over uh, to visit. And, you know, Kendrick is hot right now, you know, during that time. And all Chris and me and Dr. Pin can do is to, like, listen to Kendrick on repeat over and over mm. and over. And yeah, the, the DNA video had oh, that's just, right. just dropped uh, yeah. over there. So it yes. provided us the time to just kind of wax on what was going on in that video. What does Kendrick mean for the culture, for hip hop culture? And that was a springboard into thinking about what is Kendrick doing for us as folks who are, uh, as scholars who are interested in black thought, uh, black culture, black meaning and things like that. So uh, one thing led to another. And I think it was Dr. Penn, go figure, as prolific as he is, said, why don't why don't we put together a book about it? So, uh, <laughs> Shout out to Dr. Yeah, Penn. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so I think um, building on what Chris is saying, we were really inspired by Uh, the DNA song and the video that came out for that and just how um, corporeal that was and how visceral it was. And it was sort of like in your face, but we were also just really struck by the album damn Dan. So like, you know, we're there, we're listening to it. We're like, Oh my goodness. There's so much of significance here for the scholar of religion. There's a lot going on for the scholar of race. There's a lot going on for the cultural critic, for the philosopher. Um, there's just so much going on there. And so, um, what's interesting is when we started talking about what we think is happening in particular songs or on this album or where is Kendrick at now versus where had, you know, where he had been in the past. Yeah. We all ended up with our own sort of like versions of Kendrick in a Mm -hmm. way. And so um, we wanted to sort of explore that um, even more, you know, but in a cross occupation, cross-occupational sense. And so um, not just scholars of religion, but what would it mean to bring together race scholars and, you know, um, those journalists journalists and those in the academic study of religion, those thinking on a more theological register, historians, right? What does it mean to bring 
all of those folk around a table, you know, those that are working in and through uh, sociology to think just on, you know, Kendrick, the artist, Kendrick, the human, you know, Kendrick, um, you know, the, you know, um, the alchemist. In a lot yeah. Of yeah. <laughs> you know, and so the way we'll talk a little bit about some tropes and paradoxes that come up in the book. Um, so just to begin, the title um, of the book is Kendrick Lamar and the Making of Black Meaning. And we really wanted to emphasize making um, because it's Kendrick doing what Kendrick does. But we wanted to really emphasize the manufacturing aspects yeah. of black meaning. And so how does Kendrick manufacture that for himself? But how does the scholar manufacture that? in thinking about Kendrick and thinking about the construction of black meaning. So really trying to complicate um, meaning in a more um, structural way. And so, as you know, in our field, Dan, meaning has been something that has been more interiorized or um, something um, that speaks to that which is inside versus that which is external, um, you know, a feeling or an essence or an impulse, like a very, um, phenomenological way of understanding meaning, we wanted to kind of get on the outside of meaning and look at the building blocks of that using Kendrick Lamar as a kind of thought um, experience. And yeah. so the book project really comes together uh, from from that frame. Chris, did you want to say anything about the title of the book? I think in the beginning we had Kendrick Lamar and, oh, the, yeah. the, and the Spirit. The original title was to be Kindred spirits, right? Okay. But the the press didn't think that would work well with SEO and stuff like that. So, um, as a result, we just went with the what had been our subtitle. So, Kendrick Lamar and the Making of Black Meaning is is what we have. And also, so another thing to um, mention about that title is we didn't want to say Kendrick Lamar in the making of religion. Um, we didn't want to use that designator religion in that way because we didn't want to one reduce Kendrick to just the religious. You have the social, you have the economic, you have the cultural, you have the political, you have the historical, like there's so many other realms and domains and registers um, that Kendrick operates in and that scholars operate in as well. And so we're kind of troubling the category of religion by also the ways in which we're problematizing the category of meaning here. Mm. And so because we're looking at a diverse array of writers who came to produce in this volume, Dan, we didn't want to limit them to a particular category that they might not be working within as their object of study, but that mm. doesn't they wouldn't have something of value to say about Kendrick Lamar and the ways in which um, yeah. we make meaning out of Kendrick. We did have an initial hunch. Chris, do you want to tell them a little bit about what our hunch was in Germany and then sort of what resulted in the volume? Yeah. So, I mean, about as soon as DNA came out and we were uh, overjoyed and inspired, um, we kind of paused and said, wow, we're really attached to this and it's it's brand new. How are we so attached to it so quickly? And uh, part of the hunch was that we were probably not the only ones who had that kind of immediate buy-in. I mean, at this point, this is his fourth album, but nevertheless, uh, I mean, the, the song DNA was new. And so like we were interested to critically interrogate what uh, what was happening in our consumption of of the song of the video and then of Lamar more generally, and uh, so what came together are a number of essays that have a kind of meta referential quality. So lots of the the essays talk about um, I don't know different versions of Kendrick, different modes where. Um, folks are being uh, thoughtful about the presentation of who Kendrick is, how Kendrick is, but uh, with an eye on sketching out the process whereby either we, the scholar, or uh, folks in the social world um, forge a, 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 a semiological relationship with Kendrick Lamar. Hmm. The way that the way that we craft, we produce meaning 
through our engagement, through our consumption of, of the art product. And, and the last thing I'll say before taking a breath is that what we're suggesting occurs with Kendrick Lamar. And I think uh, our, our hunch uh, kind of gets borne out in the the essays because there there ends up a lot of different Kendrick Lamar's represented in the book, and we were we have certain critical concerns about that, but it's not so much about uh, having different versions of Kendrick Lamar. Our critical concerns would be more about whether or not we are uh, upfront about this process of manufacturing meaning. So the book serves uh, our goal in that regard really well because it it offers a template for how different meanings get constructed mm-hmm. through uh, mm-hmm. rhetorical processes or, or uh, all, all sorts of uh, different ways. So there's, uh, let's see, in the book, uh, some folks are fashioning Kendrick as a kind of run-of-the-mill Christian. Yes. Uh, other, <laughs> other folks. Yeah, yeah. Other folks kind of sidestepped any kind of uh, doctrinal or orthodox notion of religion and think about him in a philosophical uh, tone or vernacular. Uh, So it's a kind of Mm -hmm. meditation. Afrofuturist and Afro-pessimist themes come up amongst Mm -hmm. some of the more philosophically oriented pieces. Um, Kendrick becomes a black liberator in a lot of interesting um, ways, especially with the use of the song All Right as a kind of protest song that's become centralized to Black Lives Matter. Um, although in a lot of ways, um, some of Kendrick's work and some of what he has said publicly and uh, in interviews, um, it might have a liberatory kind of mood to it, but Kendrick also has a relationship to and with respectability politics as well. And so that's an interesting kind of tension, Dan, that comes up um, in the book that we read so much of the political into Kendrick, but when you look at Kendrick's work and his corpus um, or the meanings that change over time throughout his work, it's like, is he really uh, political or are we looking at the political in a different kind of register than what Kendrick might have imagined for himself in a lot of ways. So Kendrick is the, you know, black liberator. Kendrick's also like Chris mentioned, he's the Christian, which we have some thoughts about. Um, we can come talk on. About yeah. Come on. You, know, you find Kendrick talking to ghosts. Kendrick is, you know, the survivor in a lot of ways. He's got a lot of survivor's guilt. Kendrick is also, um, a survivor of uh, depression, right, as well. Um, Kendrick becomes um, a prophetic voice or the politician or the mm-hmm. philosopher or Kendrick becomes the greatest of all time. He becomes the goat, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kendrick also becomes the Hebrew Israelite, and that, um, which is interesting. That was one of the first uh, kind of paradoxes that we noted in, in the way of uh, the variability of black meanings. So how is it that we can be putting together uh, at this stage a book proposal and find different pieces floating around the internet that fashion uh, Lamar as a Christian at the same time that another voice is fashioning him as a Hebrew Israelite? So there, there are multiple issues that arise as a result of that. So one is simply religious illiteracy with respect to uh, African-American religious traditions. So like, it was clear that there were a number of folks interested in Kendrick Lamar who might benefit from hearing from uh, folks who are trained in the study of uh, not just African-American religion or African-American culture, but uh, who are the his- Hebrew Israelites? Mm-hmm. What, what yeah. do they mean to uh, black religion or black culture in history or today? So um, we wanted to provide a space where those those kind of didactic uh, fact-based kind of issues could be presented while also always keeping a kind of critical gaze on what's happening as we're writing uh, these different pieces. And then we come to the conclusion um, and, you know, the conclusion is kind of about gnosis in a lot of ways. Okay. And, um, 
Kendrick becomes all of us or we become Kendrick and um, or Kendrick is all of us um, and that Kendrick becomes who we need him to be in varying and shifting um, moments, you know, whether that says something about the social or the political or the historical moment that we're in, you know, we're constructing Kendrick um, in all of these multiplicative uh, sort of ways. Um, and so Kendrick like matters for us and to us, which is why, you know, to go back to your question, why Kendrick and not Kanye? Um, although I've got a lot of stuff on Kanye in uh, New Black Gods, especially uh, with his journey um, as well, is that Kendrick, like the iterations of Kendrick and the fabrications of Kendrick are so um, intentionally multiplicative and oppositional in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, I, and I sort of asked that facetiously and mainly for, you know, folks listening, but I would definitely agree. And uh, yeah, I've yet to really, you know, assess where uh, Kanye's mm -hmm. at. You know, he's now here and, you know, he's back in Chicago doing, you know, praise and worship and, <laughs> and whatnot. <laughs> um, it's so brilliant, though, Dan. It is. It is. It's so brilliant. And I don't think Kanye does things, you know, by accident. Right. Kanye's always got a plan. Um, you know, he, he always has, uh, you know, something sort of um, up his sleeve in a way. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'd be curious just, you know, as, as y'all's thoughts on Kendrick, because some folks have labeled him as a, uh, you know, as a Christian and as, oh, man, mm -hmm. you know, this is like Christian. So, you know, and I think the the lines have, you know, continued to be blurred between what is, quote unquote, Christian hip hop, holy hip hop. You know, we got somebody like Lecrae. Are we going to. You know, are we going to include him in that canon as well? Um, are we are we not? But then you got all these other cats, you know, and then are we just going to limit it to just race? Um, are we going to also include, you know, folks on, you know, different, you know, wavelengths and spectrums, LGBTQ folks included and whatnot? So. Where do we well, yeah, are? You said you had some interesting that I'd be I'm dying to learn to hear more about just that because I mean, and again, for those listening, I'll put this link in the, in the show notes. But just the, the table of contents, you start with Section 80 in Park One, move to Part Two, uh, Good Kid, Mad City, you know, 2012. Then you got to Pimp a Butterfly, which was one of my favorites. Um, and then Damn. And then you like you said, you have the conclusion there uh, with Kenosis and the meaning of, of, of Lamar. So, you know, this is an expansive you know, complicated, you know, the, the richness of authors that y'all cho chose as well. Yeah, um, shout out to all the all contributors. The, yeah, um, yeah mm -hmm. we were, were very fortunate to uh, have so many uh, incredibly thoughtful uh, people, gifted writers contributing, uh, of which you, of course, mm -hmm. Dan, uh, you, you present something on Section 80, and uh, it's, it's a fantastic contribution and uh fits well with everything that we have uh before we get off of here i'll i'll give a, a shout out to the authors because i want folks to, yeah. to know who's who all is contributing but um so um to your question dan i think you know it's i think kendrick lamar is a race man in mm. a lot of um, he's not as intersectional as i would like him to be okay. or at you know, as intersectional as some folk might make him out to be. I want to see him engage in other domains of social difference, but it seems to me that when Kendrick is not thinking about himself and feeling bad for where he finds himself in the world, which is on the other side of poverty, right? And on the other side of limitation now, and he's got that survivor's guilt going on, He's thinking about race and he mm. often will use the rhetorical construct of religion as a way to articulate and say something about race. So when he says, you know, I'm not black, no more, I'm an Israelite, you know, is he really saying he's a Hebrew Israelite or is he trying to complicate a certain kind of narrative on race or does he see himself as sort of transcending categories of difference to say something on a more universal kind of register. Um, so I think Kendrick is very much a race man, although I think you can read his work as a journey um, 
through ways of talking about religion. And so Kendrick does use, you know, in, in the early part of his work, Kendrick is using a certain kind of narrative of uh, struggle and, you know, Christian theological categories that we would say are explicitly um, Christian. And then I think Kendrick does something a little different. I think it shows the maturity of his spirituality. And I call it spirituality, not because I'm trying to imply something of the spiritual or the supernatural or the metaphysical. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, that's not what I have in mind, but I'm trying to think about spirit as flesh mm. in a lot of ways, in the ways that Kendrick tries to complicate uh, that narrative on the category of religion. It seems that he's doing something that's so much more capacious and robust than that category can actually hold um, together. And so, um, you know, that's, but there's this kind of attraction to um, Kendrick. Um, and I think a lot of different kind of people find themselves attracted to Kendrick, but they cannot always articulate that attraction. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I think another, as you were talking, Monica, one of the things I was reminded of is a, a theme that uh, we didn't know about before we started on this project, but we know about now is that the significance of Compton and local community to Kendrick Lamar cannot be uh, underestimated or cannot be overestimated, excuse me. It is, he is a Compton kid. And so yeah. to the extent that there are, are ways that um, his corpus shifts and moves and his uh, ideological commitments are, are shaped by this or that um, event or, or concern. His concern for the folks where he gets his start remains constant throughout his corpus. I think that's, uh, you know, and I, uh, yes, I, I like, and I like that, you know, that, that, you know, that you're naming that because I think, you know, looking at a different articulation of what a West Coast, you know, hip hop artist is. And I think, you know, so many folks have the imprint and rightfully so uh, of N.W.A. or Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, you know, and so there's still that West Coast feel or, you know, Bay Area rappers and Too Short and, you know, Mac Mall and all them and stuff, E-40. Um, but so I, I don't know, I have appreciated Kendrick's just diversity in in not necessarily subjugating himself to a primarily west coast and it has to sound a certain way but you know, like you said he's you know still locating himself you know in that you know geographic you know location and whatnot yeah. so <laughs> and that's absolutely right and i i think one of the as a as a geeky scholar one of the things that i was so fascinated by is that his preoccupation with location with place seems to be connected to our ability to make the most of him per our own. Mm. So it's, it's his groundedness that enables us to kind mm. of move with him in different ways. Were he in the moments when he's not as grounded, when he's speaking to a more kind of general space or situation, it, the, we're not as interested in those moments of his corpus, but when he's really, really grounding himself, uh, in place or uh, DNA is an example of him grounding himself in his own mm -hmm. kind of biochemical reality in the most visceral, explicit way. But the, what kind of gets uh, presented across the essays is the way that um, our ability to make meaning with him is predicated on him, have him making meaning uh, on other people or on other places. That's, that's really the point that I want to, um, draw out. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating insight. I think, and I think about for the way that, um, you know, I'm not, Kendrick is not a narcissist, but Kendrick talks about himself a lot. And yeah. so Kendrick is always thinking about Kendrick's story and what he feels, um, guilty about or the pain and the struggle mm -hmm. that he's been through and not wanting to forget that. Um, you know, so I think what Chris is saying is spot on. He's got a very like personal and a very local um, kind of geography 
to his work. It becomes his map in a lot of ways. We're the ones that are kind of universalizing these things. But when we look behind the curtain to get a sense of, you know, Kendrick, the person behind the music, uh, Dan, it's interesting that the antithesis is almost at work. The opposition is at work. When he's talking about loving himself, he's doing the song because at that point in his life, he he was going through a deep depression and actually really couldn't come to bring himself to love his own self, right? Mm. Or if he's talking about being all right, maybe it's that we're not all right and it's okay not to be okay, you know, or it's okay not to be um, all right or that everything um, won't always work out um, in that fashion. So I think Kendrick plays a lot with his feelings and like sort of where he finds himself in the world and that historical memory has a lot, a, a large impact, I think, um, on Kendrick's thinking, but, you know, the self-referential nature of Kendrick really struck me, um, you know, as something that was quite significant, that he talks about himself a lot, and we tend to talk about Kendrick a lot when we're talking about our own worlds. <laughs> so, yeah. You know. yeah. All right, all right, I'm going to pause this right there. I know it was getting good. I know these part ones and part twos, but you know what? This part two is coming. It's going to be even better. All right. So thanks for listening. I told you it was going to be great. Next week, part two is coming up. Unless you're listening to this in real time, then you can just skip right now to part two and then you're there. All right, y'all. Thanks for checking out Profane Faith, whitelashpodcast.com is where all the show notes are at and a host of other podcasts and resources as well. Check it out. I'll see y'all next week. Peace. Peace.